BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. On this episode of Newt's World, I want to talk about George Catlett Marshall. Marshall is, I think, one of the greatest Americans, somebody who in some ways is comparable to George Washington. He was a man of enormous integrity, of great professional dignity, a man who had focused on his profession, who believed in serving his country, and who was really very filled with a need for integrity. There's a great moment where Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who's amazing at manipulating people, turns to Marshall early in their relationship and says, do you mind if I call you George? And he immediately responds, yes, I very much prefer you call me General Marshall. And the reason was he knew that if Roosevelt could get inside his skin and Roosevelt could treat him as a familiar person, that Roosevelt would just plain manipulate him. And so he wanted to keep the distance. He was a man who, in later years, from the sheer burden of responsibility, was seen as austere and aloof. And yet, if you go back and look when he's younger, he goes to parties, he dances, he has a number of girlfriends. He ultimately enjoyed life. But gradually, steadily, he became more aloof and more distant. Marshall went to the Virginia Military Institute and graduated from there at a time when still had enormous prestige as the place that had produced Stonewall Jackson and that was seen really as almost comparable to West Point. Marshall was so smart and worked so hard that early in his career as a captain, he was sent to the Philippines. And in the Philippines, they had very large war games when the two American forces would line up against each other. And Marshall was the chief planner and chief of staff for one of the sides. This is a very young man. And his side won decisively. They annihilated the other side in the war game. The army at that time had a questionnaire, an annual review, and said, if you went to war tomorrow, would you want this person to serve under you? 
the commanding general of the Philippines, wrote about this young captain, no, if I went to war tomorrow, I would want to serve under Marshall. So already as a captain, he was seen as a man of extraordinary capabilities and a man who understood the art of war and the art of leadership. And it was the two combined that made him so amazing. He wasn't just intellectually smart, although he really was. He was also a man of such enormous integrity that people looked at him and almost automatically followed him. That's why I draw the parallel to George Washington. There are some men and women, Margaret Thatcher would be an example, who simply exude command. And Marshall was in that tradition. Marshall ends up going to Europe in World War I, serves under Pershing, who was the commander of the American military at that time in Europe. And Marshall ends up as chief of staff in one of the largest military operations in World War I. Everything has to work. This is the first time that the American army is operating on a large scale since the Civil War, which, remember, is 50 years earlier. So there's no institutional memory of being a big army. The army had been scattered all across the West. It was in small packets at various obsolete forts, really many of them coming out of the Indian Wars. And the fascinating thing was that this is an army which was so small that when Pancho Villa led a group of Mexican soldiers across the border at Columbus, New Mexico, and the U.S. government decided to chase him, they literally rented cars to get to Columbus, New Mexico. They had airplanes that were so underpowered, they couldn't get through the passes in the mountains in Mexico. They had a very small army and a very small force, but they kept learning and growing. People like George Patton, for example, who was part of the expedition into Mexico. So Marshall's part of a group that is rising very rapidly as the army goes from a very tiny force to a three million man force with a million of them in Europe. They understand that they don't understand. That is, modern warfare had evolved with artillery, with machine guns, with barbed wire, with the beginning of the tank. And the Americans didn't have any of those experiences. They didn't know how to do it. So the first phase of the American army in Europe in World War I was learning from the French and the British. What is it that big armies did? How did they do it? And Marshall was one of the chief people at learning. He helped organize the largest American offensive, which involved moving thousands and thousands of men in combat. He understood a lot more about operating with allies because he had to work with both the British and the French. And out of all that, his reputation kept growing. And people thought, you know, this is a leader of the future. This is one of the gifted people around whom we're going to build the American military. And then the war ends. And I think it's very hard for us looking back to realize that this tiny army, which had exploded for four years into a big army, went back to being a tiny army. And the result was that people like George Marshall really had relatively boring lives for a while. Now, in Marshall's case, because he was seen as a great trainer, he ended up at Fort Benning, which is where the infantry was based. And he produced a book, which I still recommend to people. In fact, one of the fun things when Calista and I were doing a movie about Ronald Reagan, we went to Reagan's ranch. And Reagan had served in the Army Reserves in the 1930s. In fact, he was in the last cavalry unit with horses that the U.S. Army had in the late 1930s. And there on the bookshelf at the Reagan ranch is the 
1939 edition of Infantry at War with the introduction by George Marshall. This was a book which was designed to teach you how to think. And it was designed not to teach you a rote cookbook, do A, do B, do C. Instead, it was designed to teach you when you approach a problem, here are the kind of things you ought to be thinking about. So Marshall had operated in an environment where he was really trying to understand the nature of warfare, and he was trying to understand how it would evolve and how new technologies would affect it. Marshall also had this passion for learning. So, for example, at one point he actually took a course in being a blacksmith. He wanted to know every aspect. He wanted to understand air power as it evolved. When he was a young officer serving the Philippines, he got permission to go to the great battlefields of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, just to see what the battlefields were like, because they were the forerunner of what happened in Western Europe in terms of the use of machine guns and artillery and barbed wire. He was constantly learning, constantly trying to improve himself. And in that process, he also kept a little black book. Now, this is a man who, all through the 1920s and 1930s, had this idea that at some point he would be in charge of the army and the army would expand. And when it expanded, he wanted to be able to pick the right people. So when he found somebody who was really smart and he thought really capable, they went in his book. And he gradually built sort of an address book, if you will, of all of the key players who he would get promoted in World War II. At the same time, there's a great story. In the case of one particular officer, Marshall got his name wrong and thought he was somebody else and for two years blocked his being promoted until somebody finally got to him and said, you know, General Marshall, that's not the person you think it is. And so at that point, they played catch up and the guy ended up becoming a general officer. So Marshall is quietly, steadily working. The Army's very small, very underfunded. But at the same time, there's a sense among almost all the senior officers that they're going to go back to war. Now, they don't think they're going to go to war in the Pacific. They think they're going to go to war with Germany. They think that the rise of Hitler makes it almost inevitable that there will be a great European war, and they fully expect that they'll have to fight that war. And so Marshall is one of the people who is preparing for that kind of a fight. He had been trained by Fox Connor, who was General Pershing's chief of staff. Connor was probably the smartest man in the army in World War I. Connor's other great protege was Dwight David Eisenhower. And Connor made sure that Marshall was aware of Eisenhower. Eisenhower had gone off to the Philippines working for Douglas MacArthur, who after he retired as Army Chief of Staff was hired by the Philippine government to build a Philippine security system. He asked Eisenhower to go with him. And the Army had a system, since the Philippines were still in American territory at that point, that you could go to the Philippines you could also work with the Philippine government as well as the American government because we were in principle helping the Philippines prepare for independence, something which we felt strongly about. As a country, we were pretty anti-colonial, which caused problems later with Churchill and the British Empire because we wanted to defeat Hitler, but we didn't necessarily want to prop up empires. So Marshall's aware of Eisenhower, and that becomes very important right after Pearl Harbor. And I'll explain why. Marshall believed in delegating. He believed that you found good people 
and you assigned them tasks. And if they were smart, they got the job done. And then you gave them a bigger job. If they didn't get the job done, they disappeared. And he went and looked for other really smart people. Eisenhower, having served in the Philippines and having a reputation as a very good planner, was brought in shortly after Pearl Harbor. And Marshall said, I want you to review everything we can do to save the American forces in the Philippines. Ike spent weeks studying it, looking at shipping, looking at naval power, looking at air power. And in this famous memo, he says, look, even with all of our resources, we can't do everything. We have to set priorities. We have to recognize what really matters, focus on it, and not just squander our resources all around the world. And he basically said to Marshall, you're not going to be able to rescue the Philippines. It's not possible. The Japanese Navy's victory at Pearl Harbor means that we're not going to be able to force our way through by sea. It's impossible to do it by air with the technology of that period. And we're going to lose the thousands of men who are currently serving in the Philippines. And you just need to accept it and move on and focus your resources on what is doable, not what is impossible. Now, this was a particularly tough memo for Eisenhower to write because he had served in the Philippines and knew most of the key people who he was consigning to either die or end up in a Japanese prison or war camp. What it convinced Marshall of was that Ike was a man of enormous integrity. He was both intellectually correct, but also it was a very hard moral decision to follow strategic principles and do the right thing. And therefore, Eisenhower began moving down the road in the right direction. Ironically, at one point, Marshall said to Eisenhower, do not think you're going to get a battlefield command. Now, Ike had not had a battlefield command in World War I. He'd been assigned to Camp Colt at Gettysburg and had led the Army's tank training school. And he really felt deeply that he wanted to be in combat. He wanted to lead troops in battle. And Marshall was just saying to him, the headquarters matters. You're one of the greatest planners we have. And you're going to spend this entire war at a desk here in Washington, D.C. Well, in one of the key moments in World War II, Eisenhower blows up and says, I don't care where I'm assigned, and I kind of resent you saying that. You think I should be here? I should be here. I'm going to do my duty. I'm not going to follow my ambition. Now, that's really important because a few weeks later, Marshall sends Eisenhower to London and says, go and start working with the British and figure out what we need to do to create a combined force so that the Allies can work together. I think had Eisenhower not been so aggressively tough that Marshall would not have sent him, because Ike was still very, very junior. He jumps during the war period from lieutenant colonel to four-star general, which is one of the most rapid rises in all of American history. All of that's done with Marshall protecting him, guiding him, advising him. And you can see the balance of power shifting, by the way, in the early days, it's clear that Eisenhower is very junior, and he deeply respects Marshall. By the summer of 1944, Eisenhower is very experienced, and when Marshall wants him to do something he thinks is wrong, he just tells him, this won't work, and I'm not going to do it. And Marshall, by that stage, trusted Ike enough that he basically allowed him to do the things he thought was right. Marshall would give him advice, but he wouldn't give him orders. There's a huge difference.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Marshall was extraordinarily good at organizing and delegating to people. In fact, in Drucker's extraordinary book, The Effective Executive, which I always recommend to everyone, Marshall's one of the key people that he describes in the book as an effective executive. And it is partly this ability to delegate. What had happened in part was that Marshall had three heart attacks just before the war. And his doctor said to him, you know, you have two futures. You can delegate everything which is not vital and work less and ride your horse more and survive. Or you can start training your replacement because you're going to die. Now, you just have to decide which of those two you want to do. But you're not going to be able to continue carrying the whole burden of the army and survive. Well, Marshall was an extraordinarily disciplined man. And so he built a habit. If it wasn't vital, if it wasn't so central that he had to do it, he delegated. And he said after the war that this ability to delegate was probably the key to his surviving the war and ironically made him much more effective. Because if it was truly a very big decision, then Marshall would make it. But if it was anything which could be delegated, then somebody else should make it. And that began to grow. At the time, his personal deputy was Beetle Smith, who later on was sent to Europe to be Eisenhower's deputy, because he's one of the best implementers in the U.S. Army. And there's a day where Beetle walks in and disrupts Marshall, realizes that Marshall had been working on paperwork. And Marshall looks up and Beetle says, oh, I'm sorry if I interrupted you. And he said, look, you have already interrupted me. What is it? Beetle says, well, we have these two guys out here. And they have invented this thing they call a Jeep. And it looks like a pretty good idea to me because it's going to give us a lot of battlefield mobility. But they need $50,000 to produce the prototype. And they can't get anybody in the Army to sign a contract. Marshall stares at him for a second and says, you think it's a good idea? He says, yes. You know where there's $50,000? He said, yes. 
He said, why are you bothering me? And the point he was making was that wasn't a big enough decision for the chief of staff of the U.S. Army in a total war to have to think about. And so he just sort of shrugged it off. And he was shrugging off hundreds of decisions, which a more centralized system would have carried to the very top. Now, part of what that did was it allowed the top people to focus on the big picture and to make sure that the big things happen. Part of what it did is it created great speed of decision-making because people at a relatively low level could just go ahead and decide and keep moving. If they made a mistake, they went back and fixed it. If it wasn't a mistake, they were already moving forward. All of that led to a much leaner, more streamlined system and allowed Marshall to focus on really, really big issues. And remember, this is a military which, at its peak, will have mobilized 15 million Americans, will be fighting a war across the entire planet, will be providing weapons of war to Great Britain, to the Free French, to the Polish volunteers, to Russia itself. A great deal of the Soviet army is going to war with American tanks and American trucks. All of this is happening simultaneously, and he's having to think through waging a war in the Pacific, waging a war in the Atlantic. And so he constantly tries to pull back and think about the very large picture. They reorganized the Pentagon, which actually only came into existence in 43. They built the Pentagon while he was chief of staff. They reorganized the whole structure of the American Army. They developed the Army Air Corps. Prior to Marshall, there had been a very bitter fight between the Air Corps and the regular Army because the land-based Army really disliked the Air Corps. The Air Corps consistently would go to Congress and sneak around behind the Army's official rules and get extra money and extra authorization. And so the traditional Army was very angry and, in fact, would like to have fired Hap Arnold, who was the chief of the Air Force, then called the Air Corps. And Marshall intervened, consistently supported the development of an Air Corps, and found himself in charge of the largest, most powerful Air Force in the world. Now, there are two places that I think are fascinating where Marshall, in retrospect, was just plain wrong. And I want to give you these two examples because they'll help you have a better sense of exactly what was going on and what a remarkable leader Franklin Delano Roosevelt was. The first was the decision about the size of the Army and the size of the Air Force. The challenge with big Air Forces is that they require enormous industrial bases. I mean, if you're going to build B-17s and B-24s and B-29s, you're going to have to have huge factories. You're going to take up thousands and thousands of workers. And by definition, you can't have as many people available for the draft for the Army. So Marshall and the traditional Army wanted to have about 200 divisions. And he went to brief President Roosevelt and said, this is our plan for World War II. And Roosevelt looked at it and said, well, here's the problem. I want to have 50,000 airplanes every year. And so I want to have an industrial base which will produce 50,000 airplanes every single year. And I want a bunch of them to be very large strategic bombers that take a lot of effort and a lot of development. You can have as large an army as you can create while you're doing 50,000 airplanes a year. And Marshall knew this would destroy their plan. And so he made a very determined argument. And when he got done, Roosevelt looked at him and said, let me repeat, we live in an age where air power is going to dominate. 
I want us to have so much air power that no one can compete with us. So you will develop a plan that allows for a big enough industrial base to have 50,000 airplanes built every year, and you will develop an Army Air Corps that in logistics and pilots and the capacity to build and use airfields will be able to use 50,000 airplanes a year. Given that as your baseline, you will come back and tell me how big the Army's going to be. Well, this was a revolution. By the way, historically, Roosevelt was right, which is one of the fascinating things about Marshall. As brilliant as he was, there were moments and places where he didn't quite understand the flow of history. Remember, he'd come in with a 200-division plan. He goes off, comes back a couple weeks later, and the American Army has 89 divisions. Now, his job was to be chief of staff of the Army, not commander-in-chief. And the commander-in-chief who's sitting in the White House had given him his instructions. He didn't miss a beat. He didn't sulk. He didn't get angry. He didn't necessarily think Roosevelt was right, but he thought Roosevelt was commander-in-chief. So he saluted, and he built the 89-division army with the most powerful air force in history. The other great example, Marshall really believed in an American doctrine of focusing power, something which we'd gotten with General Grant and General Sherman in the Civil War. Because we could mobilize such huge forces, it's something that Pershing had carried to Europe with him in 1917. And so Marshall's ideal for going after Hitler would be to have landed in 1942 or 43 on the French coast and driven straight into Germany. Now, there was a couple of big problems with that. First of all, the American military in 1942 and 43 probably could not have successfully landed on the French coast. It took the fighting in North Africa, in Sicily, and in Italy to get that force seasoned enough that it could actually stay in the field against the German army and be successful. Second, in 1942 and 43, the Russians had not yet degraded the German army enough. So there had been a much stronger, more powerful German army than was available by June of 1944. Third, the British were terrified of going into France. Their memory of World War I was of an enormous bloodbath. A tremendous percentage of young British males had been killed. They were desperately afraid they were going to get caught up in another trench war and lose another generation of young men. And so Churchill really, really didn't want to land in France and talked openly to Roosevelt that he had this image, this nightmare of what would happen. But they were under great pressure from Stalin, who was fighting an all-out battle of survival against the Germans. And they were also under pressure from people back home. And the American people, as today, have a very short time horizon. We were attacked in December of 1941, December 7th to be exact. So we were really mad. But by the summer of 42, we're mobilizing. Taxes are going up. Rationing is occurring. Young men and women are joining the military. The draft has occurred. And people start saying, so when are we going to fight? The impatience of the American people is very real and has always been very real. Led to, for example, the fiasco at the first Battle of Bull Run because the Union couldn't wait long enough to get organized. And so they had to throw a disorganized group in hopes that they would defeat the Confederates easily, which didn't happen. Well, the same thing's going on here. Roosevelt looks around, and his military commanders come back and say, you know, 
What you could do is you could land in North Africa. Now, if you look at a map, North Africa is a long way from Paris. And it looks like it's a secondary theater. And Marshall wants to wait until 43, build up our forces, and go into France. He passionately, deeply believes that's the right doctrine. On the other hand, the British had sent a Canadian unit with a few Americans attached to it to a town in France called Dieppe, and they had been slaughtered by the Germans. And it was a very sobering reminder that amphibious operations are difficult and that you can be defeated and thrown back into the sea. So Churchill's even more convinced. We ain't going into France in 1942 or 43. And Churchill wants to go into the Mediterranean, first because there's already a British army defending Egypt and fighting in North Africa. Second, because it means that they won't have to go into France. And he just wants to divert us away. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Roosevelt looks at all the facts. And Roosevelt, in the end, is one of the greatest politicians ever to be president. He has a deep, intuitive sense of the American people. Rivals almost Lincoln in this sense. And Roosevelt just knows he's got to do something. And so he says to Marshall, we're going to land in North Africa. He's very clear. This is what we have to do. And so Marshall looks around, and remember, He'd had this relatively junior officer who was a staff officer who he'd sent to Europe because he had great political skills, and he's sitting in London building good relationships and is smart enough to know that he ought to have dinner once a week with Churchill. And so General Eisenhower gets his first big command, which is to be in charge of the entire invasion of North Africa, which is a huge project. Now, one of the great strengths of Marshall is whether he agreed or disagreed with the order. Once the order was issued, he executed it. And so they put together an invasion, which if you go back and look at it, with forces coming out of Britain, forces coming out of Virginia, 
they managed to put together an operation that is remarkable as the first big American-European engagement, and they successfully land in North Africa, fight their way across, and then decide that the logical next thing, because they've already got all these forces now in North Africa, and by the way, Hitler just can't stand to lose. So Hitler actually flies in thousands and thousands of additional troops when it's hopeless, and the number of Germans who surrender in North Africa is comparable to German losses in Stalingrad. People tend to forget that by the time the Germans get beaten in North Africa, they're suffering a big defeat and losing a lot of troops and a lot of equipment. And at that point, when you have all those forces already in the Mediterranean, the logical thing is, do you go to France, you could go into the area around Marseille, or do you go into Italy? The decision is made that you should land in Sicily. There is a brilliant deception plan which convinces the Germans that we're actually going to land in Greece. So they divert a lot of their forces away from Sicily. The result is that we successfully land in Sicily, which then knocks Italy out of the war, and we start fighting our way up the Italian peninsula, which is a very, very hard thing to do. The Italian peninsula's mountains make it a very easy to defend peninsula, and the result is that we're sort of bogged down. At which point... Finally, only in December of 1944, they have the decision they're going to go into France, which is what Marshall had been for ever since 1941. Sadly for Marshall, at that point they need a commander for what was called Overlord, which was the overall invasion of Europe. Roosevelt calls him in and says, General Marshall, this will be the biggest combat assignment of the war. You've certainly earned it and you're certainly our greatest general. But when I think about you being out of Washington, I can't sleep at night because you are the person who is executing the entire worldwide strategy. Therefore, I want to keep you here, even though you clearly would be a brilliant commander, and you've certainly earned it. And Marshall then says, well, I understand if that's what you want. Obviously, Eisenhower should be the commander. And that's how Ike ends up as the commander in Europe. What's impressive about Marshall, if you go back and you look at a map of the world, we have forces in Australia. We have forces in New Guinea. We have forces working their way up the Pacific towards Japan. We have these huge air power that is now beginning to extend itself to firebomb Japanese cities. We have forces in China. We have forces beginning to work with the British to come down into Burma. We are active in the entire Middle East. We are active in the Mediterranean. We're now landing in France. This was truly a global war. And at the same time, we've been providing a lot of resources to the Soviet Union to help it win the war. Marshall has an overview of everything. And there's an interesting side story. Every morning began about, I think, five or six in the morning, with a thorough briefing on the world. Because Marshall had to be kept up, you know, what had happened yesterday? How are we doing in New Guinea? How are we doing in Sicily? What's going on in France? And the initial briefer was boring. And Marshall found he couldn't pay attention because the guy was just too slow and too boring. So he actually got a Hollywood star to come in 
He was in the Army Reserve. And every morning, the star, Robert Montgomery, would do the briefing. First of all, he had the star's ability to act and to project and to use his voice. And he understood how to have a good script. And so Marshall would go in happily, get a 30 or 40-minute briefing, understand around the world what he had to pay attention to, and then go to work on solving problems. But it was a typical example of Marshall. He knew that he had to pay attention every single day, that he had to know what was going on in the world, and he knew that he couldn't do it if it was too boring. And so he solved the problem. One of the points that Drucker makes in The Effective Executive is that great leaders know that most problems are symptoms of deeper problems. And if you solve the deeper problem, you solve an entire class of problems. And so Marshall thought that way all the time. He reorganized the Pentagon. He was very careful and very thoughtful about how to put things together. He worried a lot about organizational structures because he knew that that's what gave people the ability to get things done. Now, in the end, as the architect of victory, he played a role that I think was extraordinary. He then plans to retire. Eisenhower is brought in. Eisenhower is going to be in charge. And at that point, Marshall thinks he's going to go back home down the valley in Virginia, raise flowers, and be relaxed. And Truman calls him and says, would you be Secretary of State? He goes back. He actually organizes for the very first time ever a planning office in the State Department, which plays an enormously important role in helping think through the strategy for the Cold War. He operates as Secretary of State with great, great prestige. He goes to Harvard and makes a speech on why we need to prop up Western Europe in order to stop the Soviets and why we need what came to be known as the Marshall Plan, which was the largest investment in economic growth in foreign countries in history. And his prestige carried it. People said, if George Marshall says this is the right thing to do, I guess it's the right thing to do. So in many ways, he was vitally important. Ironically, he was deeply opposed to the establishment of Israel, thought that it guaranteed years of warfare in the Middle East, and was horrified that President Truman was going to recognize the new Israeli state and, in fact, threatened to resign. And Truman, who is in his own way a remarkable figure, said, you have to do what you want to do, but I'm the President of the United States and we're going to recognize Israel. Interestingly, the senior State Department tried to undermine that decision all the way to the United Nations. The senior civil servants were deeply opposed, partly anti-Semitism, partly a sense that the Arab world would explode, which it did. But in the wake of the Holocaust, the discovery of the death camps, the general sense of guilt about the failure of the world to have protected European Jewry from efforts at annihilation, nonetheless, there was still this underlying sense that you really want to cause trouble by creating Israel. And in Truman's case, he said, yeah, I'm prepared to take the heat. Marshall then leaves the State Department to do a special project, which fails tragically. He is sent to China, where he spends months and months trying to get Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader, and Mao Zedong, the communist leader, to find a way out of the civil war. In the end, he fails, and I think he ultimately had to fail. But it is the last great effort to avoid a communist China. And he concludes that, in fact, it would take so much American force to try to stop the communists that simply wasn't worth the effort. After all the frustrations of China, 
Marshall came home thinking maybe he could retire, but the United States now was in a war in Korea, a war which started with the North Koreans attacking on June 25, 1950, going almost all the way to the sea, driving the Americans and the South Koreans, and then the United Nations forces that joined in, almost to defeat. And because there was a sense of real criticism, we spent from June 25th to mid-September losing. People were really shaken because they'd won World War II and what happened to this great military. So Truman decides in September 1950 to replace his Secretary of Defense, Lewis Johnson, who was a businessman with no real military experience. And Truman reaches out and selects George Marshall, and he becomes Secretary of Defense for a year, from 1950 to 1951. Marshall told Truman he would only serve one year. He took the position because at that point it was a real emergency. It required a special congressional waiver because the National Security Act prohibited a commissioned officer on duty within the previous 10 years from holding the post because they really were very afraid of having too militarized a system. Marshall was very committed to doing the best we can and felt strongly that we had to unify the Defense Department and that we had to have a team effort and felt that World War II had been harder to win because we had not had a unified department. The fact is that we dramatically expanded the military once again, and we found ourselves going from about a million four hundred sixty thousand up to three and a quarter million in the military. Marshall himself, like Eisenhower, really wanted universal military service. He wanted to have a very broadly based civilian military, which the Congress would never go along with. But as Secretary of Defense, he really worked hard to get us to understand the nature of the Cold War and to get us to adopt the various team efforts. And it's very important to remember, the United States was successful in the Cold War because we kept building alliances around the world. Marshall was a key part of that. And of course, because they had come out of World War II, both Marshall and Eisenhower were remarkably well positioned to have an understanding of our allies and to have an understanding of leading a coalition. So in the great crisis of that war, which is when President Truman basically fires General MacArthur, Marshall is very helpful because Marshall had the military prestige to explain that you can't allow a local theater commander to set national policy and can't allow him to go out there and publicly oppose the president. So it turned out that Marshall himself was prepared to do what was necessary and was prepared to take the heat. I think that it's very, very important to recognize what a key role he placed. By 1953, he's receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, quote, for proposing and supervising the plan for the economic recovery of Europe. Marshall kept his acceptance speech very short, thanking the American people for making the authority and funds for the successful Marshall Plan. And I think it's worth listening to Marshall as he talked about that. President Dr. Cohen, members of the Board of Overseers, ladies and gentlemen, I'm profoundly grateful, touched by the great distinction and honor and great confidence accorded me by the authorities of Harvard this morning. I'm overwhelmed, as a matter of fact, and I'm rather fearful of my inability to maintain such a high rating that you have been generous enough to accord to me. In these historic and lovely surroundings, this perfect day, and this 
very wonderful assembly. It is a tremendously impressive thing to an individual in my position. But to speak more seriously, I need not tell you that the world situation is very serious. That must be apparent to all intelligent people. I think one difficulty is that the problem is one of such enormous complexity that the very mass of facts presented to the public by press and radio make it exceedingly difficult for the man in the street to reach a clear appraisement of the situation. Furthermore, the people of this country are distant from the troubled areas of the earth, and it is hard for them to comprehend the plight and consequent reactions of the long-suffering peoples of Europe and the effect of those reactions on their governments in connection with our efforts to promote peace in the world. In considering the requirements for the rehabilitation of Europe, the phys physical loss of life, the visible destruction of cities, factories, mines, and railroads was correctly estimated. But it has become obvious during recent months that this visible destruction was probably less serious than the dislocation of the entire fabric of European economy. For the past 10 years, conditions have been highly abnormal. The feverish preparation for war and the more feverish maintenance of the war effort engulfed all aspects of national economies. Machinery has fallen into disrepair or is entirely obsolete. Under the arbitrary and destructive Nazi rule, virtually every possible enterprise was geared into the German war machine. Long-standing commercial ties, private institutions, banks, insurance companies, and shipping companies disappeared through loss of capital, absorption through nationalization, or by simple destruction. In many countries, confidence in the local currency has been severely shaken. The breakdown of the business structure of Europe during the war was complete. Recovery has been seriously retarded by the fact that two years after the close of hostilities, a peace settlement with Germany and Austria has not been agreed upon. But even given a more prompt solution of these difficult problems, the rehabilitation of the economic structure of Europe quite evidently will require a much longer time and greater effort than had been foreseen. There is a phase of this matter which is both interesting and serious. The farmer has always produced the foodstuff to exchange with the city dweller for the other necessities of life. This division of labor is the basis of modern civilization. At the present time, it is threatened with breakdown. The town and city industries are not producing adequate goods to exchange with the food-producing farmer. Raw materials and fuel are in short supply. Machinery, as I have said, is lacking or worn out. The farmer or the peasant cannot find the goods for sale which he desires to purchase. So the sale of his farm produce for money, which he cannot use, seems to him an unprofitable transaction. He therefore has withdrawn many fields from crop cultivation and is using them for grazing. He feeds more grain to stock and finds for himself and his family an ample supply of food. However short he may be on clothing and the other ordinary gadgets of civilization. Meanwhile, people in the cities are short of food and fuel and in some places approaching the starvation limit. 
So the governments are forced to use their foreign money and credit to procure these necessities abroad. This process exhausts funds which are urgently needed for reconstruction. Thus, a very serious situation is rapidly developing which bodes no good for the world. The modern system of the division of labor upon which the exchange of products is based is in danger of breaking down. The truth of the matter is that Europe's requirements for the next three or four years of foreign food and other essential products, principally from America, are so much greater than her present ability to pay that she must have substantial additional help or face economic, social, and political deterioration of a very grave character. The remedy seems to lie in breaking the vicious circle and restoring the confidence of the people of Europe in the economic future of their own countries and of Europe as a whole. The manufacturer and the farmer throughout wide areas must be able and willing to exchange their products for currencies, the continued value of which is not open to question. Aside from the demoralizing effect on the world at large and the possibilities of disturbances arising as a result of the desperate desperation of the people concerned, the consequences to the economy of the United States should be apparent to all. It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world, without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy is directed not against any country or doctrine, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Its purpose should be the revival of a working economy in the world so as to permit the emergence of political and social conditions in which free institutions can exist. Such assistance, I am convinced, must not be on a piecemeal basis as various crises develop. Any assistance that this government may render in the future should provide a cure rather than a mere palliative. Any government that is willing to assist in the task of recovery will find full cooperation, I am sure, on the part of the United States government. Any government which maneuvers to block the recovery of other countries cannot expect help from us. Furthermore, Furthermore, governments, political parties, or groups which seek to perpetuate human misery in order to profit therefrom politically or otherwise will encounter the opposition of the United States. It is already evident that before the United States government can proceed much further in its efforts to alleviate the situation, and help start the European world on its way to recovery, there must be some agreement among the countries of Europe as to the requirements of the situation and the part those countries themselves will take in order to give a proper effect to whatever action might be undertaken by this government. It would be neither fitting nor efficacious for our government to undertake to draw up unilaterally a program designed to place Europe on its feet economically. This is the business of the Europeans. The initiative, I think, must come from Europe. The role of this country should consist of friendly aid in the drafting of the European program and of later support of such a program so far as it may be practical for us to do so. The program should be a joint one, agreed to by a number 
if not all, European nations. An essential part of any successful action on the part of the United States is an understanding on the part of the people of America of the character of the problem and the remedies to be applied. Political passion and prejudice should have no part. With foresight and a willingness on the part of our people to face up to the vast responsibilities which history has clearly placed upon our country, the difficulties I have outlined can and will be overcome. I have said something publicly in regard to our international situation. I have been forced by the necessities of the case to enter into rather technical discussions. But to my mind, it is of vast importance that our people reach some general understanding of what the complications really are, rather than react from a passion or a prejudice or an emotion of the moment. As I said more formally a moment ago, we are remote from the scene of these troubles. It is virtually impossible at this distance, merely by reading or listening or even seeing photographs and motion pictures, to grasp at all the real significance of the situation. And yet, the whole world of the future hangs on a proper judgment, it hangs, I think, to a large extent on the realization of the American people of just what are the various dominant factors, what are the reactions of the people, what are the justifications of those reactions, what are the sufferings, what is needed, what can best be done, what must be done. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for listening. I admire General Marshall so much, and I wanted to have this chance to share with you sort of a brief insights into a man who was very complicated, very smart, and helped shape the modern world. You can read more about General George Marshall's life and get links to my other Immortals podcasts on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.
As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.